I was going to comment on this last week, but I've decided to comment on it today because it makes a little bit more sense for me. Season 2 is bipolar as crap. Now, that's obvious why. Season 1 had a kind of a weird, like, slalom of quality that just kind of did this for the most part. But it was like the whole season, it's like they, they, they hit most of the really bad right off the bat. And then they then then they started improving, and while there were still some less than stellar episodes, it basically improved in quality over the last end of season one. Then season two does this the whole season. Now this makes perfect sense. Season one they had a pretty solid and decisive plan, and the only thing they had to adjust was changing the word Ferengi into the word Romulan. Otherwise, no particular issues. Season two they had a plan, and that plan was thrown out the window. So in other words, what we're seeing here is Star Trek TNG improv. Them trying to throw together scripts and ideas and trying to basically do whatever they can in order to make sure the show keeps coming out. It's worth noting at this point in time as well that TNG was doing quite well. This was also as Star Trek V was in production. Now that's an important thing to note because it means Star Trek V hadn't come out yet and wasn't a massive financial failure yet whatever you think of that film, uh, the financial side of things, would have significant impact on TNG as well. There's also, uh, well, as I mentioned before, there was a lot of politicking going on. Now, we don't know the specific details. We can only speculate on those. But we do know there was a lot of office politics going on in the writer's room, in the creative staff room, and amongst the producers. This is also when Roddenberry was effectively fully upstairs as far as TNG. The only thing he could do was make phone calls and basically say, we should probably do this in order to influence things in a certain direction. He had no direct say in things. Now, I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing. I'm just giving you a little bit of a timeline, a peek into what was going on during Season 2. And I think all of these factors combined kind of help to explain why Season 2 was like this. Because Outrageous Okana was like one step away from a lamentation for me. Whereas I really liked this episode. Not It's not super good, but I mean, two of my favorite TNG episodes ever are in Season 2. Q-Who and Measure of a Man. It also contains Outrageous Okana and Shades of Grey, two of the worst TNG episodes in my opinion. So, you can see why this is just such a weird season to talk about. Anywho, <clears throat> I do want to mention something really quick. I know this is actually addressed in the episode, and in fact the scene doesn't happen until like 30 minutes in, but it's so disconnected from the episode proper, and it's mostly an out-of-character thing. I want to talk about Jordy's visor. Now, LeVar Burton hated the damn thing. The thing actually gave him real-life headaches. And while he got kind of used to it after a while, he felt that it limited his ability to express himself with his face. Anybody who has seen LeVar Burton knows that he has a tremendously expressive face. He is one of those actors who actually enjoys acting with his expressions, with his eyes, and with what we can do with his features. He's very good at it, too. I give him props on that. And he had a visor on his head all the time. Now he could do he and as we'll see throughout the series he get he learns to still use his face to be very expressive despite the giant you know clip on his head but he wanted to have those eyes out so they decided to write in a line so we would have an in-universe justification if it was decided to go in that direction now spoiler alert this won't happen for 8 years in universe time until uh 
I guess that would have been first contact would be when that really happened with the implants. Because, well, I don't know whom exactly was against it, but I do know that several people in the producer's lounge basically said no. Like, it wasn't just an individual. The producers, plural, were like, no, nah, we want him to keep the visor. Now, this is one of those weird situations where I don't really find myself entirely on one side or the other of such a debate. I think a compromise would have worked better. If I was in charge, if I was the mainliner of TNG at this point in time, I would have probably said, tell you what, Burton, bear with me for another season, maybe two. We're going to do a character arc across multiple episodes of you slowly getting adjusted to having this thing off, and then we're going to give you your eyes back. We're probably going to do a few in-between episodes where we have some kind of contacts in, and then it'll be just you without the makeup. And we'll make that, we'll bake that into the character, and we'll have that be part of several episodes as Jordy has to learn how to adjust to effectively being, receiving input he's not entirely used to, and engaging in stuff that he's never known before. Remember, Jordy was born blind. So this would be an entirely new and unique experience for him. And LeVar Burton is talented enough that I think he could pull that off. That's what I probably would have done if I was in charge in this situation. Obviously, I wasn't, so instead he just kept the clip on his face for eight years. <clears throat> I'm curious what you guys think of this, by the way. Do you think he should have kept the clip? Do you think they should have, you know, gone ahead and gone with this? Or do you think they should have tried some kind of in-between thing, like I suggested? Or another idea that I haven't even thought of? As ever, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts. Let's talk about Howie Sego, and I hope I'm saying that right. I couldn't find any pronunciation guide for this one. He is the gentleman who plays Riva. Now, I've said this many times before. and In fact, I just said this last week. Star Trek, in general, tends to, in many ways, the quality of episodes are massively impacted by the quality of the guest stars. Good guest stars is when Star Trek is truly at its greatest, my opinion. And I feel like when they really, really shine is when they know how to use those guest stars to good effect. Uh, the drumhead is actually a wonderful example of what I'm talking about, just right off the top of my head, to keep this within TNG. So Riva, that is to say Howie Sego, is phenomenal in his role. He manages to portray three different presentations of his own character. He comes across as haughty and aristocratic. He comes across as frustrated and aristocratic. And then he comes across as, for lack of a better way to put it, human. And I think he does an excellent job of all three. By the way, yes, he is actually deaf in real life. That is a real thing. Uh, the actor is. And he actually had been kind of saying, you know, maybe we should get this done. And there was probably some backroom politicking going on. But I, I'm okay with it because the result was good. In my opinion, this is a good episode. In fact, I feel like this episode gets across the same thematic point that Melora did, but is better executed. Because in Melora's thing, it was a little bit too focused, in, in my opinion, in the wrong direction. Whereas in this episode, it's focused not just solely on Riva, but also his interactions with others and his purpose in the world itself. His acknowledgement of what he wishes to do, what he's good at, etc., etc. He even has basically a pride before the fall the fall, and then a recovery from the fall all throughout the course of this episode. And they make him very believable. I also want to give huge, huge props to the three actors who played the chorus. They managed to do excellent stuff. They, they basically were being told to act with their words and nothing else. And as I've said many, many times, most actors don't know how to voice act. 
most actors are actually bad voice actors, and there are so many examples of that, I'm not even going to bring any up right now. But they managed to effectively be just you know brick statues and then do all of the enunciation and presentation of Riva with their voices. Very good stuff. I like that. I also like how there are tiny snippets of them when they aren't him. In other words, when, when the actors are no longer playing Riva, but are instead playing the chorus. There's only a few snippets of it. But every little tidbit was actually quite good. And so definite props on behalf of that. Sadly, I can't say the same for the alien bad guys. The guy was like, death first. It, it was really pathetic, actually, to be blunt. Um, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I also want to mention one other thing really quick. This, as I mentioned, this episode was when Star Trek V was in production. They were still doing filming and work for it. And uh, I know that not just because of timetables, but also because this is when Will Wheaton's first time of meeting William Shatner's uh, encounter happened. I don't know how many of you know about what I'm talking about. For those of you who don't, I honestly encourage you to go uh, look on YouTube and look up Will Wheaton, William Shatner, um... There's a few other words in there that I'm not going to say on my show, uh, and I don't like saying in general. <laughs> it is an interesting and kind of horrible story in its own right, but it's also rather heartwarming. I bring it up for the sake of this episode, though, because it kind of shows in Wheaton's performance. And I'm dead serious. Now, it's not the kind of thing that you'd really notice because Wesley is basically a non-character in this episode. But if you look at him as, as the camera's panning across him and as he says his lines, you can see what's playing across in Wheaton's mind at that point in time. And it's like, ah, yeah. little behind-the-scenes thing. Anywho. Let's talk about a couple other things. So first of all, let's talk about Reva's role in the Klingon Federation situation. Now, this was originally written that Reva was the one who made peace between the Klingons and the Federation. Now, I've actually got to rewind that statement because originally the, the Klingons had actually joined the Federation. And as of now, season two, they were just beginning retconning that and, and making it so that there was just an alliance between the two. So first it was he was the one who got them to join the Federation. Then it was he was the one who got the alliance between the two. And then in the final script, if you notice, Picard's actually kind of vague about it. He negotiated several treaties between the Klingons and the Federation, not going into specifics. And, okay. Um, I'm sorry, one moment, please. Uh, I kind of like that idea, but I uh, wonder why it is that Worf was so wah about Reva. Like, why? They all say, oh, no wonder you feel uncertain about him. I, I don't quite get that. He made peace between the Klingons and the Federation, and therefore he makes me uneasy. What? <laughs> also, the Klingons apparently had no word for peacemaker before Reva, which I find legitimately ludicrous. Anywho. So, I want to say really quick that from a writing perspective, from a narrative perspective, I love the idea of Reva, and I love the idea of the choruses. 
What we have here is an aristocrat who is part of a, li a line, a lineage, which has pretty much bred themselves into having uh, a genetic defect as a regular trait. He actually deliberately references some other examples of this, including the hemophiliac from real life human earth history. Um, it's a nice touch. It also kind of helps to inform some of his backstory, that this is someone who is, comes from both wealth and power, and he shows this, again, props to the actor, his body language and his movements up until the big incident are very assured, very on top of things, but he comes across as just affable enough that he's borderline rude. He doesn't actually come across as legitimately rude. He's just one step away from it. So it's a very nice balancing act he manages. I also love the idea of speaking in multiple voices. I myself have uh, approached this idea in my own literary works with literally a different per, uh, voice being spoken from an individual person to demonstrate which aspect of that person is speaking, because I just like that concept. Lord knows we as human beings in real life are such massively complicated creatures that anytime we say something, we are effectively saying something with a particular voice. The sound coming out may sound like the same tone, but the mind and the emotion behind it can vary, right? So I like this presentation. Also, as a writer, it gives the, the writers of this episode tremendous potential to put certain lines that are all Rivas into a particular actor's throat, more or less literally. So we can kind of gain an insight into his emotions and his perspective, his mentality, without having to bog us down with, here's how I feel. It's a wonderful literary tool. If I can explain about that just a little bit more in brief... One of the big as uh, benefits, I would say probably the single biggest as uh, benefit of the written word as a method of fiction is that you can literally write a character's thoughts. In other words, we, the reader, can literally read what the characters are thinking. Uh, Dune, which I'm covering sometime this month, is an excellent example of this, where quite a few times the book shows what people are thinking, and the movie tried to accommodate this concept as well. But when you're showing visual medium, showing someone's thoughts isn't really just something you can do. You have to infer from their actions, from their tone, from their body language, from circumstance, what they're thinking. But with these three members of the chorus, which one is speaking gives us an idea of exactly whom and or um, exactly what is being thought behind the words. So it's a nice touch, and I like that. I also... Uh, love the fact that the episode completely ignores, with one exception, the concept of the murky morality of this situation. Riva is an aristocrat. Let's just say that as bluntly as possible. He is upper crust. And he is utilizing three people to be able to function in a way that otherwise he wouldn't be able to. Now, it is worth noting that it's not like he is being carried around on a barge that's being lifted up on the shoulders of people. That would be just kind of blah, right? doesn't matter if he's paying them well. He is being a dick in that. In his case, he legitimately can't communicate, and ergo, he is trying to overcome his, his difficulty with the chorus. Now, they may be a fanciful, expensive kind of chorus, but he is still overcoming a disability. So, to use a real-life example, it's, you know, he 
he needs crutches, so he happens to have a really nice mechanical crutch, which adjusts with him and can balance things out and has some nice styling to it or whatever, and maybe some titanium built in. You know, it, the point being, it's a well-nice, well-done, expensive crutch. So I'm kind of okay with that, but there is still some moral ambiguity here. I especially find it interesting, interesting that Troy herself flat out says, and I quote, your method of communication is elegant and beautiful. When all I'm sitting here thinking is how horrible this situation could potentially be. Because remember, part of the reason why this disability exists, while it's not Riva's fault, is overall the aristocracy's fault. The whole inbreeding thing, making otherwise rare and recessive traits predominant, right? So there is actually some deliberate fault at, 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 at display here. Um, and that brings me to my next point. How much choice do you think the chorus of any given person has? We see Riva, and he's a reasonably affable individual who learns to some humility and eats his crow and manages to come out a better person for it. How many other members of his people, his ruling family, are not anywhere near as good? What kind of rights do these people have, the chorus, the people who have to telepathically engage with him and link with him over the years, or them, or she, or whatever, in order to serve in this function? Now, Riva himself flat out admits that he took them for granted. And he and there's a degree of regret in the way he presents this. Again, all visual acting, because the voice is coming out of data at that point in time. Although Brent Spiner does a good job as a translator as well. But, you know... He cuts across the idea that he didn't quite realize how much he cared for them as people, in addition to being a crutch that he happens to utilize as a tool. So we can probably fairly safely say that these three particular chorus, they're okay. They're probably ta well taken care of and well watched after. And yet at the same time, they are distinctly... I guess the way I would probably relate it to real life is they are very high-paid servants, but servants who have to serve in basically every capacity, you know, the kind of uh, taking care of messes and cleaning houses and, you know, I, I need you to help dress me kind of a situation, you know. In other words, a very high-demanding job which leaves very little time for a life of their own but they are probably well taken care of in the process. That's probably the equivalent. This is all supposition, of course. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because, granted, you guys know me and I tend to think in terms of dark fiction because that's what I write, but I'm thinking about how much horribly some other chorus members have this particular thing and how uh, abusive this, the possibilities exist here. And I really don't want to think about that too far, but it's interesting to just consider in its own right. Is Riva the exception, or is he the rule in terms of his relation with his chorus? Fun thoughts. And, of course, good science fiction. Taking a concept, really expanding it in a way that we can't do in otherwise normal mundane circumstances. So Picard, of course, is a good diplomat right back to him. In many ways, presents himself very nice. He basically makes one stumble, immediately corrects it, and spends the entire rest of the episode being exactly what he needs to be. Um... There's also a really nice scene. Now, Howie Seago specifically, he was championing this particular cause, politicking, as I mentioned, 
in order to try and dispel some of the, in his own terms, uh, myths about deaf people and mute people uh, in trying to, to, to examine that concept in a science fiction setting. Now, I feel like there's one scene between him and Jordy that, that pretty much plays directly into that, where he's got the visor there and he's talking about it. And Jordy's line, I like Jordy's line, the being, you know, uh, do you resent it? What, being blind or the visor? And the response is both. And Jordy says, well, no, in either case. Being blind is how I was born and the visor part of who I am. And I like who I am. I like that. I like that. I like the way that's presented. It's a nice touch, and it kind of showcases one of the things that I admit I took a while to understand, and I feel like uh, this was generally the point that Howie Siegel was going for, that even though they are disabled people, there's not necessarily something wrong with them. In other words, most disabled people would probably accept being cured if they could take it, but that doesn't mean they are hobbled infidence, right? It doesn't mean they can't function. It just means they don't have the advantages the rest of us do, and there's no reason to look down upon them for that, either, either deliberately as if they are inferior or passively as if they need special care. Now, I know this sounds like a weird thing to say, and it's a very tightrope line, I'll admit it. I'm probably not explaining myself well. All I'm going to say is I've actually met and interacted with plenty of people who are both deaf and mute and both in my life. And finding that common ground of communication with careful movement and careful presentation, body language, when the voice goes away, communicating, is an, it's an art form in its own right. And finding that specific line of, I don't want to talk down to you as if you're lesser than me because you're not, but I can't use normal communication with you. Therefore, we have to find another common ground. You want this, you want this, this is how we're going with this, you want three of these, you know, that kind of a thing. And you just make a certain emphasis in the way you show things. And it's funny how you learn how to do different motions in, or excuse me, the same motions in different ways to emphasize. For example, I'm sorry to talk about this, just really quick. I did this really emphasize right there. You want three of these. But that's like putting an exclamation point at the end of it. If you were to do that much more softly, like three of these, please, you can see how that comes across as a different tone. If I was to take away my words, you could probably understand at least vaguely what I was trying to communicate there. And of course, if I use different motions for this, you could understand how inferences and tone can be put into something that literally lacks it. I find the whole concept of nonverbal communication fascinating and have studied it basically all my life. So forgive me for talking a little bit on this. <sighs> so <clears throat> I also do very much like uh, Howie Seagull's not sign language. Um, I don't know if he was doing literal sign language. I used to actually know sign language, you know, real life English sign language. I have since lost almost all of it because I never practiced it. Um, but he is very understandable in the way he communicates things. There's a scene where he's talking with Troy. You know, the, the words are all surface, and therefore it, what's underneath is what really has significance, right? He's very understandable, despite not utilizing his words. It's a nice touch. And again, that's pretty much all on Sego himself. Um, <laughs> uh, 
I also like how he cuts to the heart of the peace matter immediately. This is something I don't see fiction analyze a lot. So these people have been at war for 1,500 years. 15 centuries. <laughs> like, that's... Just, wow, right? I mean, um, you could argue that places in real-life Earth have been at war for that long, but that's kind of a... A different thing, you know, that's just a region that's been in conflict. A specific war between two sides going on that long, that is kind of crazy. No politics. Um, so, and yet despite tossing out what is effectively a large number for no reason, I mean, this could easily be 150 years and it would get across the same point. Because the point is that this is a multi-generational conflict. The entire point is that this is a war whose original purpose and motive no longer matters that it is now just about the war itself, that everyone who is currently alive was raised, born and raised, in an environment where they're the enemy. And the other factors don't really matter at that point. And Riva cuts to the heart of that very nicely. And he says, now we have to find out what changed, what makes this desire for peace, what is different, how we can find common ground, and as he mentions later, turning disadvantages into advantages. Now... The reality of the peace talks and troubled peace talks is a fascinating topic. The episode doesn't fully talk about this. It just sort of presents the idea and then moves on to the more relevant point of Riva's story. What I mean by this, though, is it is unfortunately true that it is tremendously easy for one person to disrupt an organization's desire for peace. This is true in real life as well as in fiction. I mean, God sakes, do you know why the Horde and the Alliance are still at war? Because it's not about the organizations. There are plenty of people who want peace on both sides, but it doesn't take much to provoke the other, especially if they think it was a deliberate attack. It goes back to that whole tribalism concept. If all of these people and all of these people don't like each other already, so it's already a tinderbox, and then one of these people rushes out to kill people, well, how hard is it for these gr this group over here to assume that the first group was behind that one person's actions? And what if the first group denies it? Well, how do you know they're telling the truth? Remember, you already don't like those people. You are starting at a negative. It's a, it's a really complex and, compl and convoluted situation, and thus... I was actually going to be upset if someone didn't try to disrupt this initial attempt at peace talk, because that's exactly what would happen. Who knows that one individual's motivations? Maybe he was crazy. Maybe he'd only known death his whole life and couldn't let go of it. Maybe there was a legitimate hatred in him that was difficult for him to overcome, even if he wanted to. Maybe there was, he was sent as a specific agent who was profiting off the war. Maybe he has his own political motivations for keeping the war going, that even with his death, his agenda will be forwarded. There's so many reasons why one person could reignite a war. And that's what he tries to do. Notice he tries to kill Riva, by the way. It is only Riker's quick action that saves Riva. Oh yeah, that brings me to the skeleton thing. <laughs> I just want to mention that really quickly, because if you asked me what I remember most about this episode when I was a kid, it's the skeleton thing, because it was damned gross and horrifying. I remember legitimately being just, Wah! when I first saw that. Remember, I was, oh uh, gosh, I don't remember how old I was at this point. I, I was single digit. I had not yet reached 10 at this point in my life. I was kind of young. And so I'm just like, whoa, whoa, what? 
with the, ah, mom, <laughs> mom, you know, what the crap? And then they do it again to the other guy. It's like, wah! I do kind of like how the, the guy who shoots his fellow then immediately puts his hands up. No, 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 no. I, did, I had nothing to do with this. Please, we need you. Well, that doesn't matter because one man just ruined it, didn't he? It also shows the reality of Riker's concern and Reva's concern. I love this because it's a bloody subtle point, and I wouldn't even be surprised if the episode didn't intend this. But Riker speaks on the side of prudence. More people, more personnel, more equipment might, asterisk, might have allowed them to actually intervene with this and save the chorus's lives. If someone... Now, I have to admit that I find it a little ridiculous that no one was able to stop the guy before he shot, but, you know, at least it would have been more possible if they had been more protected and more security-minded. But Reva's point is also very valid. Bringing down a small army armed with guns to a peace talk is not really going to help anyone's minds incline towards peace. It, in fact, has the very serious risk of pushing people who are already inclined to peace away from it. So, it's nice how they show both perspectives, and yet don't really state either one to be actually correct. Riva was right, but Riker was also right. And thus, you see the, 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 the dilemma there. Now... Uh, let's see. So then we have... I don't actually have much to say about the rest of the episode. It just kind of fast-forwards at this point in my mind. Uh, and I, again, I don't have much to talk about it. Again, wonderful job with Howie Siegel. Wonderful job. Uh, we see the, the, the spoiled brat come out of it. We see the frustration. And it's so understandable and relatable to anyone out there who has ever been temporarily disabled. Now, I lost the use of my leg for a significant period of my life. I also lost the ability to properly function as a human being for several months. So I have been temporarily disabled twice in my life. Now, I hope none of you ever have, because it's a horrible thing and no one should have to go through that. But if you have, I bet you could completely understand where he's coming from. Because having Hukes become so accustomed to something, like an arm, or walking... Or something as simple as taking a shower. Have you ever tried to take a shower when you can't use your left leg? It's such a mundane thing. You don't think about it, right? And so we see that frustration. It becomes instantly more relatable. It becomes instantly more understandable. Like, ah, and it helps to humanize him. Whereas before, he was just a little bit too haughty and a little bit too above it all. And I love how Picard reaches him, not by being a dick, not by being like, smack, smack, quick, get yourself together, man. No, instead he reaches out to him diplomatically. We are now in this together. We will make this right. And then that's when he starts to calm down a little bit, overcome his initial frustration, and start to think of a way through this. Now, of course, he gives up. But, of course, this is when Data, perfect usage of Data for here, by the way, becomes his second interpreter. And we see Troy really come into her own. Troy's effectively just been... Uh, I, I, I have no other way to put this. A romance of the week for Riva up until this point in time. This is when Troy and Marina Sirtis are finally allowed to start doing something in the story and start to push through him and into him and try and be like, look, we now need this. This is very important for us in order to succeed at this. 
please help us with this. You know, and, and the way she does this, and she starts off demure, and she starts off diplomatic, and then she comes more harsh, and then she becomes even more harsh, and then she finally pushes him into a corner, and once he finally acquiesces, she has a point, she reaches out the olive branch. She does a wonderful job of basically pushing him into resolving the situation. So, good job on that. I also really like how... I'm trying to think. I, I really like how he mentions the two hardest points. Well, really, the hardest point about uh, arranging a peace talk between two people is getting t is getting the two sides to listen, and as he puts it, to really listen to each other. In my opinion, in my experience in real life human <laughs> studies, for lack of a better way to put that, because I've been studying people my whole life, that is the biggest problem between, between almost every method of human interaction. It boils down to a form of communication problem, but what it really is is a lack of trying to genosco uh, the other side. I hate, I hate to use Greek, but it's the only word that fits this. In other words, trying to actually comprehend to, as he puts it, to really listen. It's one thing to have the words hit you, but it's another thing to really take them in and think about what is being said. How many arguments have you seen, or been in, where the other side or you weren't really listening to what the other person's argument were? You were on this side, or they were on this side, or Bob was on this side, or Bobette was on this side, and they were stalwartly convinced of the reality of that side, so it didn't matter what point was being raised. All that mattered was that they let them have their turn, and then they argued right back as if they hadn't heard anything. This is so common, it's actually kind of sad in its own way. Thus, trying to get two people, or two groups of people, to really listen to each other, that is a true challenge. It's one of the reasons why a mediator actually helps. Because, as has been shown many times in real-life human history, two people, or two groups of people, are more likely to listen to a third person than they are to each other. So then they, they come up with the solution of the episode. And although it is portrayed as hopeful, one of the things I like is that it is not a win. We have not secured peace, nor will we secure peace anytime soon. But through effort and struggle, through trying to turn our disadvantages into advantages, and in, in, in the endeavor, we now have a chance at peace. And I like that. That's more realistic, and frankly, it's more human. Isn't that part of the human ideal of Star Trek, that we struggle regardless, that we attempt? It's not that we win, it's that we try to win. I like that, and I do like this episode quite a bit. We'll see what wonderful Season 2 episode we get next week. I'm making a point not to look it up now, because I want to be surprised. But regardless, I hope you've enjoyed, and I'll see you next time.